All right, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Where are we going to be at? Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Good. We're all paying attention tonight. That's good. We are, at least for tonight, we're coming up on one of my favorite uh, texts from, uh, from the book of Ecclesiastes. And at the same time, one of my least favorite passages from the book of Ecclesiastes, as Solomon is deep into his sort of experiment, if you want to call it that. This book is just a gigantic experiment of Solomon trying to figure out what the heck is going on in his life, where he can find joy and contentment in. And this is one of my, like I said, favorite and worst passages from it because I feel very much uh, drawn to it. Like I, I can relate to the issues that Solomon's going to run into tonight. The mission of this experiment that I've been saying, uh, of course, is to find peace and contentment and joy. He first looked to wisdom and then to folly and pleasure, ultimately finding that even the ultimate pleasures of this life are not enough. So he's at kind of a crossroad at this point, because if you've been following with us this entire time in this book, you know that Solomon, of all people, had access to the, the greatest pleasures you could find as a person. Like, he had access to those things. He also had the greatest wisdom of any man that had ever walked the earth up to this point. So he had both of these things to test. He had both of these things to be able to look towards and compare to one another, and neither of them worked. So he's at this sort of self-made crossroad. And I say self-made crossroad intentionally because this is a, uh, in his head, his contentment, his joy in life is more or less an equation, right? Contentment and happiness is this math problem, and there must be an answer to it. If there is not contentment and joy over here, then there must be contentment and joy over here. But it's not that simple, right? Like, we know that it's not that simple. Uh, an example I'll give is I, I love flying. I really enjoy flying. I hate driving. That's one of the things that I love about being an adult, is that as a child, anytime I went somewhere with my parents, we always drove. We always drove, which I understand that. My, my parents had three, four children to, to haul around, so I got that. But then I became an adult and was like, oh, we're going to Florida? I'm going to fly. Because, I mean, I can just do that. It's, it's, my own, it's my own prerogative. So I love to fly, but it comes with a decent amount of anxiety. No matter how hard I try, no matter how many times I tell myself that I'm not only more likely to die in a car crash than a plane crash, but that I'm nine times more likely to be struck by lightning and three times more likely, likely to be eaten by a shark than to die in a plane crash, no matter how many times I can tell myself those things, when I get in the plane in my head, I'm like, you know what, this plane could be going down. It's, it's, it might be the only one, but this plane could be going down. And for me, it's not about heights. Like, I'm not really, I don't like heights. It's not my favorite thing, but I also, like, can deal with heights. For me, it's a control thing. If, you, if, you've, if you're in my family, you would know that I, and Jason's not in the room, so he can't really tell, me, tell me, or affirm this, but I am, like, obsessive about who drives the car. When I went on vacations and I have, we have driven, I drive the whole way. Like, I am the only one that is behind the wheel. And it's not because I'm, like, this crazy good driver just in my head, I know that I'm not going to fall asleep. I know I'm not going to wreck. I know I'm, oh no, I'm not going to wreck. I know I'll be focused. I trust myself. But the irony of that is kind of twofold. First, I cannot control other drivers, right? So, I, excuse me. I went to Chicago one time. I was driving back in a snowstorm, being very careful. This guy in front of me started to swerve. I'm in a snowstorm as well, so I can't like 
break super well or like maneuver super well. So I'm just sitting there hoping that this guy, because he's like swerving, coming back across my face. And I'm like, I hope that this guy didn't hit me because there's nothing that I can do. He did not hit me. To this day, I have no idea like physically how that happened. Like it seemed like I was looking at like the, the physics of it. And I was like, there, there's no way this guy's not going to hit me. And then he didn't hit me. But that was completely out of my control. And secondly, outside of that, I've been in two wrecks in my life. They've both been caused by me. So I'm obviously not like the best driver in the world. I think very highly of myself as a driver, but I'm not that skilled of a driver. And the irony, or why I come back to the flying metaphor, the irony is that every time I get an airplane, guess who's flying the plane? A professional. Someone who's like been trained to do that. Like imagine if I was in the plane, I was like, you know what, I'm going to take over. I know that like, you've been trained for this, but like, I feel better if I was driving this thing, if I was flying this plane. Obviously, that's nonsense. So my fear of flying or the anxiety that I get from it comes strictly from the fact that I want control over where I'm going. I want to be the one that's in control. If something happens, like, great, but at least I was the one to do it. I get, this is not on my notes, but I'm going to go on. And I get so mad at the Chiefs whenever they lose games, and they lose games like trying to run the ball. I'm like, you have Patrick Mahomes. Just throw the ball all the time. Like, at least if you lose then you lost knowing like you fired your best shot, right? Don't lose in some other stupid way. That's how I feel. If I, I know like whenever I'm driving, like I'm in charge of what's going to happen to me. We discussed that's nonsense. That's not true. But the point still stands. I desire that control in my life. And what Solomon has discovered, both in seeking godly wisdom and worldly living, is that he is not in control of his life. He does not control or dictate where his contentment or joy is found, or also where or, uh, he also doesn't control what happens to him. It's going to lead him to arguably his most desperate state today with him declaring that he hates this life. It's a very like, desperate thing that Solomon says up to this point. He's talked about how vain life is. He's talked about how desperate life is, how terrible things can be on this planet, but he's never went as far to say that he hates his life. So we desire the same sort of control in our lives, but we find, well, at least if you have it, you will soon find that we're not actually in control as much as we think that we are. But let me tell you also, this message is not for like this ungodly person who's like trying to live their life on their own without the Lord. Like that is true. It is for that person. But this message is more so for the godly person seeking wisdom and watching their life fall apart even so. Like seeking the Lord and watching their life fall apart even so. And wondering, as Solomon is going to today, if the, if the fool ends in the same way that I end. If the same thing happens to me that happens to the fool, what is the point of wisdom? That's the point Solomon's going to get to today. So what's the point in seeking wisdom if what happens to me is just going to happen, or what happens to this person who's not even, he says, that walks around in the dark? If, it, if the same thing happens to them, what's the point of seeking any wisdom for me? Solomon's beef today is that in all of his godliness and all of his wisdom, what happens to that, that fool is going to happen to him also. So we're going to start by reading in verse 12 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're going to read through verse 17. It says, So I turn to consider wisdom in madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. 
Then I say that there is, is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this, is also, or this also is vanity. For of, the wise, for of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and is striving after the wind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful to be gathered again, to be able to study your word, to be able to worship together, to be able to fellowship together. I just pray tonight as we study through this text, as we look at Solomon's continued uh, pursuit of joy and contentment, I pray that we would be undistracted by outside things and that we would be able to focus in on the downfall of Solomon's life. That we'd be able to focus in on the fact that Solomon's life, or Solomon did not find his portion in you, but found his portion in other things. That we would see his inability to reconcile this as his eyes being on the wrong things. I pray that you bless the rest of our time together, that we'd be focused and undistracted, that we would just glorify you this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. I had to text Jason real quick. Sorry. But you haven't seen that before. How many people text on stage? I do. Anyway, I'm not like proud of that, but by the way. Um, so this first thing that we see in verse 12 through 13. This is Solomon sort of coming back down off of the ledge of, of this. He, he's, seeking, he's seeking pleasure. He's seeking all these things. And then he winds up kind of coming back to wisdom. He's like, okay, that didn't work, so I'm going to try this again. I'm going to see if it will work this time. A few weeks ago, we looked at the vanity of wisdom. Right? We looked at how the very first thing that he sought to find contentment in was wisdom, because that was what he asked God for, was to give him wisdom, not other things. So he went straight to that and sought to find his contentment in that, but found that there's a limit to what knowledge and wisdom can accomplish, especially if it's not godly wisdom. With that said, whenever I talked about the, the vanity of wisdom that week, I also talked at length about how important it is, how important wisdom is. That Solomon isn't wrestling with whether or not he needs wisdom. He's wrestling with the outcome of that wisdom. That the more that he pursues, the more he chases wisdom, the more that he sees that the world is broken. That doesn't mean that wisdom was a bad thing, though. We talked about that a lot. So after searching out pleasure, it has brought Solomon back to wisdom and folly for one more try, which just shows us how important it is. Wisdom, not folly. (laughs) This is how important it is that he came back to it, that he thought, okay, clearly that didn't work. I can't find my joy in the, in the lusts of the flesh, so I'm going to come back and try to find some joy in wisdom. Solomon says that there is more gain in wisdom than folly. In other words, even in a world where both wisdom and folly are equally vain, there's more to be gained from wisdom. There's more benefit to that. And I think our brains are wired to think the opposite. That's why in the midst of this text, it's like the most desperate text I think we've read so far, but in the midst of it, this verse kind of stands out to me as like a brief glimpse of hope where Solomon kind of gets it. He says even that there's, there's more benefit to wisdom than these other things. Now, again, our brain is taught sort of the opposite. Now, be honest with yourself. If you weren't a Christian, maybe some of you aren't a Christian either. But if you are a Christian, if you weren't, 
you would probably live a life that was different than the one you're living now. Like if we're being honest with ourselves, if we gave this life up, we would be doing different things. We'd be seeking out different things. We would not have the same desire of righteousness, of holiness. Now, you might have some of that still, but the likelihood, and what we usually see from people that leave Christianity, it's not because, now, they'll say, a lot of people will say it's because they view God as unjust or whatever it might be, but the real reason is because they want to do things that God tells them they shouldn't do. So if we're being completely honest with ourselves, and honestly, if we want to be, if we want to be forthright with ourselves, there's not really a benefit to righteousness if you're not a Christian. There's not really a benefit. There wouldn't be a benefit for you like trying to maintain these levels of righteousness as a non-Christian. There's nothing pushing you towards that. So logic stands to reason that if wisdom and pleasure are vain, it would be better to default to pleasure because we enjoy those things more than wisdom. There's a reason that whenever people leave the Christian faith, that they don't leave the Christian faith because they're like super contrite and seeking to be to find purpose in life. It's because they want to chase the earthly flesh, the lusts of the flesh, that they could not chase it before. And Solomon is saying that while both of them are vain, like while both of them don't bring any sort of happiness or contentment that he was looking for, there's still more to gain from wisdom. He was revisiting wisdom because all the other stuff had been so fulfilling, but he was still convinced that there was an answer. This is, like I said, it's an equation. I don't know if any of you guys are wired like that, where, it, where like if, you look at life as this almost like a sum of its parts. They're like, well, if that didn't work, right? Well, something else has to work. That's a very analytical approach. If you're, like, as an athlete, that was kind of how I functioned because I was a pitcher, and pitching is very, like, uh, it's about, like, mechanics. So it was all about, well, if this doesn't work, I'm going to try this. Just a little tweak here, and it'll work. And even now, like, when it, sometimes I'll, like, mess around and throw a baseball around, and I'm, like, I'm doing like terribly. Like I can't get a curveball to make to move anymore. It makes me so mad. But I'll be sitting there over and over doing it over and over again. And I'm like, why isn't it working? Like I keep changing this. Like it should be working. Like this, if if I change things, it should work. That's how our minds sort of wrap our. Or that's how we sort of think that this life uh, treats us. That it's like an equation. If 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 we don't find happiness over here, there has to be happiness to be found somewhere over here. Philip Ryken. He puts it this way. He says, this is the way that we operate. When something is missing, we go back to the place where it ought to be, even if we have looked there before. So the preacher returned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. He says, if we're missing something, it's, it's just like if you, if you lose something. You go back to where it was before, right? You go back, you retrace your steps, one of the most unhelpful things ever. Maybe you're trying to find lost things, and someone will ask, where'd you have it last? It's like, if I knew that, I wouldn't have a problem. I would know where it was. But you try to retrace your steps because a lot of times, even though that's super frustrating, it's also kind of right. Like, eventually you'll find, uh, where, where you'll remember where the last place you had something. Now, verse 12 is maybe one of the most difficult verses to translate. And there's one commentator that went as far to say that it makes no sense. Like, I actually respect that guy so much because he just reads verse 12 and he's just, at least the end of verse 12, and he's like, yeah, I don't know. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. But at the end of verse 12, Solomon says, or he says, what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. That leaves a lot of people wondering what the heck that verse means. But when, in, in reading it, the one argument that I found that made the most sense is that this question of what can man do out after the king is this sort of like question posed by Solomon out of conviction for the next generation. That is, that Solomon is thinking, they're gonna, people after me are going to find the exact same problems. 
They're going to run into the exact same dilemma that I'm running into. So I need to give them something to go off of. And he, kinda, he probably says that to an extent because he knows that God's given him the wisdom that he's given him. And he's like, I have an obligation to seek this out, to find the answer. Again, that's why he says definitively in verse 13, there's more gain in wisdom than folly. It's almost like him like, just sort of going through the motions of saying, like, I, someone's going to read this in the future. Like, some young person's going to read this in the future. I better say there's more gain in wisdom than folly. Because I know it's true. It's unsatisfying to me, but I know it's true. Even in the chaos of this life and this seeming randomness of this life, light is always greater than darkness. There's no real incentive for Solomon to write these things, right? Because he saw that both of them were vain. He didn't find satisfaction in chasing after light. So there's no reason for him to say this other than the fact that he's just reasoned in his heart. Between the two, like, the wisdom's still better. Righteous living is still better. It still leaves us with more purpose than unrighteousness and folly. This is honestly, I think, the life of the Christian. We return to the Lord in difficulty knowing full well that the difficulty might not dissipate. But we do it because we know that the Lord is always good. He's always better than the folly. He's always going to be better than the things that we might distract ourselves with. So I love verse 13. It isn't said with this sort of cheery disposition, but it's from a dark disposition. It makes me think of Lamentations 3, which I'm going to actually reference at the very end of the sermon. But in Lamentations 3, the author spends 20 verses detailing the pain that the Lord had caused him. Then he says in verse 18 that his endurance had perished along with his hope from the Lord. But then in verse 21, out of nowhere, the author writes, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's the vibe I get from verse 13 of Solomon. He's like at the end of his rope, nothing has worked, but he's like, wisdom is still greater gain. It's still greater to seek the Lord than to seek other things. Solomon needed to have this sort of mindset of the author in Lamentations. And verse 13 shows us that he kind of understands it in his head. But verses 14 and 15 show us that he's still seeking this sort of control over his own destiny. So look at verse 14. This is where we're going to see the, let's say, the vanity of trying to control your life. Or trying to control the direction of your life in every uh, manner and aspect. There's rest to be found in verse 13. There's rest to be found for the Christian that recognizes that even when wisdom fails us, even when tough circumstances and seasons are sort of sucking the life out of us, the waiting on God is still better than looking to the lust of the flesh. Like there's rest to be found in that. But Solomon is not finding this rest. He says in verse 14 that the wise person has his eyes or has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet they perceive that the same event happens to all of them. What he's coming back to is death. Like that's kind of his thing. Solomon's at the, like he's kind of old at this point, so he's like, I lived this whole life just to die like the fool. And I've used this example several times of the that TV show or TV show character that like spent his whole life eating healthy food, and then he gets found. He finds out that he has high cholesterol, and he's like super angry. He's like, I spent all my life eating like terrible food, not going to eat delicious food, just so that whenever I was forty years old, I could find out I'm just like everybody else. That's what Solomon's experiencing right now. He's like, I've sought out wisdom, sought out pleasure. I've done all these good things, specifically on the godliness side. He's sought out righteousness. He's sought out wisdom. And the same thing happens to me that happens to the fool. I'm just going to say at the outset of this, and I wrote this in my notes too. I took some liberties here with the text where what Solomon is saying, he's specifically talking about death. Like that's his problem. He's like, 
he's, he's looking for immortality. He's looking for some sort of eternal purpose. He's like, what's the point of life and wisdom if we all just die? That's the point, okay? You make sure you understand that because what I'm, what I'm going to go off of kind of leaves the point of that. But I think that, uh, I think that this text applies to more than just death. I think this text applies to how we see the connection between our own righteousness and God giving us things that we want. That whenever we seek the Lord, whenever we seek righteousness and wisdom, and don't get what we want, or when the Lord doesn't move in the ways that we want him to, and then we see the fool, we see the non-Christian not chasing after the Lord, but things going well for them, we might be inclined to say, what the heck? What's the point? Why would I continue to follow the Lord if nothing is working for me, but everything is working for the fool? Solomon is not content with that. In fact, he's irate at that. He understands that wisdom is better than folly, but he can't reconcile why both the wise person and the fool experience the same things, why they have the same end. There's this old question that has been asked for centuries is why do bad things happen to good people? Like, it's a really constant question. The same, the opposite is kind of true too. Why do good things happen to bad people? I think about Job, just a super righteous, a, a truly good man, so good that, the, that God calls him blameless, which is a big deal that God would call him blameless and upright. And when things go horribly wrong, Job's friends assume that he had done something wrong to earn it. Because even in their heads, they couldn't figure out why this sort of calamity would happen to a good person like Job. They're like, you must have done something. Like, I know you're not saying you've done anything, but like, you must have done something. You might have just done something you missed. Think about God's people in the hundreds of years they spent enslaved in Egypt, right? They had God, the God of Abraham, defending them. It was their covenant relationship with God. And yet they were enslaved in Egypt. And there was no punishment for Egypt. There was no liberation for them in Egypt. Egypt grew. It prospered. Now, eventually they got out. And the Egyptians had a really gnarly swim in the Red Sea. But that was like 200 years after the fact. There was, there, think about the Israelites that were born into slavery and died in slavery, wondering, where is God in this? Why are these Egyptians prospering? And I am following the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and I'm not prospering. He says the wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet the same event happens to them. Think of it this way. Do you guys know what the game Frogger is? No? Some of you do? Has anybody ever been to 1984, the arcade in Springfield? If you, go to the, if you go to the arcade in Springfield, you'll find Frogger. But essentially, it's a really simple game. It's this fro Actually, I don't even know how to describe it super well, but it's a frog. You have to get from one side to the other without getting ran over by something. The one, I actually know this game mostly because of a Seinfeld episode where a guy's trying to push a Frogger machine across the road, and they're like mimicking the game. It's, it's a funny scene. Um, but, but kind of what Solomon is saying here is that if you had someone playing that game, like the best Frogger player like ever to live, and then you had a dude blindfolded playing the game, both of their games are going to end the exact same way. One person might have a way higher score. But both of them, I mean, no, no one's going to, like, frog their way into eternity. Eventually, you're going to die. Eventually, your game is going to end. That's Solomon's problem. He's like, eventually, we lose, so what's the whole point? I'm giving all this effort, seeking wise things, working hard. I have the Holy Spirit, so why is it that I experience the same pains, the same struggles, the same misfortunes, and ultimately the same death as the person who's given no effort to seek wise things or who lives in falling without the Holy Spirit. This is sort of the vanity of, that, of our desire to control our lives. He asks, why then have I been so wise? 
What's the benefit? As I pursue wisdom, as we pursue wisdom, what happens to me or in our mind, we think that what happens to me should be dictated based on us seeking wisdom. That because I'm seeking the Lord, he is almost indebted to us to give us the things that we want. Now, I want to preface this. We're going to get to this at the very end, but I want to preface this by saying that God is a good God. He's not like, again, he's not sitting there like trying to make your life as miserable as possible to see how long will they hold. How long will they hold until, until they like crack? That's not his point. That if we're obedient, that God will, I mean, I think that God will bless us. It just doesn't always look the way that we want it to. And in our heads, the problem that we run into is our motive, is that we're seeking wisdom, not because we love the Lord, but because we know that if we seek wisdom, the Lord will bless us for it, give us the things that we want. The root of the problem is Solomon's motive. He was out to get something. That's why I love that Lamentations 3 quote. We're going to read it at the very end of this message. But to be able to lament the pains that God has specifically brought upon him. That's what's important about Lamentations 3 as we'll read. He's saying that God has given these things to him. He's brought these pains into his life. And yet in the same breath, he says he puts, this, that he puts his hope in that very same God. Solomon wanting something out of wisdom that he didn't get. He wanted control. He wanted his wisdom to lead to immortality, to this sort of endless joy. And whenever he didn't do that, he lashes out to God saying, well, I've been, I've been righteous. I've sought you. And you won't give me what I want still. He leaves him desperate. Look at verse 16. It says, For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. In other words, Solomon's saying that even the wise, per- the wise person will be forgotten just like the fool. Now, this is kind of unfair from Solomon's perspective because Solomon was not forgotten. But at the same time, if you think, so there's a really famous quote from Sandlot where he says that heroes get remembered but legends never die, right? Well, to an extent, that's true for like the main guys. I think it was Babe Ruth that said that. Like everyone knows Babe Ruth, even if you're not like a baseball fan. Like you've heard of Babe Ruth. There's a lot of really good like baseball players that no one knows their name. And that, they have a lot in common with really bad play, baseball players that no one knows their name. Solomon's like, if the wise gets, for, the, the fool gets forgotten, but so does the wise. So what's the point? He says, he says, how the wise dies just like the fool. And he says, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Upon realizing that what happens to the fool will also happen to him, upon realizing that he couldn't escape from death or find some form of immortality with all of his wisdom, Solomon resorts to hating his life. And I think that this is the first time in the book that we've even seen that word hate. That's a scary thing. To hate life is about as bad as it gets. Desperation. We see the life is vain. The death is coming. There's nothing that even the wisest man with the most resources can do to prevent it. And he kind of is at this point where he doesn't know where to go. So he's like, I hate this life. That's what he resorted to. To quote Riken again, he said that Solomon is spiraling down into absolute despair. Now, maybe you've been there before. Like maybe you've been in that season of life before. Maybe you still are in that season of life right now. If you have, you can kind of relate to where he is, where he's tried everything. He's tried everything to fix his problems, and yet he hasn't been able to. Nothing has gone correctly or according to plan. And part of what makes his, his complaint unique is that he's saying, I've been a righteous man. I was the one, I was the one whenever you asked me to, to request anything, I was the one that asked for wisdom. How many guys would have asked for wisdom? 
I was the one that asked for wisdom. You get this sort of feeling that he's like holding God in debt to him. He still can't find joy despite having far more pleasures at his disposal than anybody else. He can't find joy despite having all the wisdom and knowledge you could dream of having. And he reaches this point of, like I said, desperation, where he's like, I hate my life. Not only do I hate my life, I hate everything that life signifies. I hate looking. That was part of what wisdom was, right? Where he saw wisdom. All that he saw was the suffering that came in his life. And he's like, I'm done with it. He says, everything he has done under the sun was grievous to him. So where does that leave us tonight? Well, first, of course, that he isn't wrong in a lot of respects. We discussed this in the first sermon that if anybody has credibility, it's Solomon. If he can experience all the pleasures of this world and say that it's a striving after the wind, like we, sh- we can trust his word on that. That's only with a view, though, that is laser-focused on the things that are under the sun. We haven't talked about that in a few weeks. But at the very beginning of this series, we talked about how important that phrase is going to be. That everything under the sun he found to be grievous. He found to be terrible. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who hasn't come to this point or won't come to the point in their life where they said, I hate everything. <laughs> You're going to be hard-pressed to find someone that that is not true of. Because in like, our guts, we know that it's true, what Solomon is saying, that there is not joy to be found in all of these things. We're trying to find it in every, every which way, but there isn't any joy to be found in those things. There's seemingly no purpose or order to, every, or to anything. But what makes living wise and desiring to control our own lives a desperate act is that just because, even though we know this to be true, we still seek it. Even though we know that there is no controlling our lives. We know there's no holding God hostage. We know that just because we're living righteously does not mean that God owes us anything. Despite that, we still seek that. We still live righteously with the hope that God will give us what we want. This idea in our head that as we follow God, everything's going to be perfect in our lives. And then whenever something isn't perfect, we blame God for it. It's a false flag. It's fraudulent faith. We aren't actually finding our portion in God. That's the problem that Solomon has. He's not found his portion in the Lord. He's found it in other things, or he's trying to find it in other things. And whenever he's like, I haven't found it anywhere. I hate life. And God's like, if you would just find it in me. If you just find your portion in me, this wouldn't be a problem. There are very few things that will make a God-fearing person hate their lives more than when they perceive that God has abandoned them, which is where Solomon is at right now. So as we close tonight, I have two main application points for this sort of fraudulent faith. The first is that we have to find our portion in the Lord. That as we seek out wisdom and folly and pleasure and all these things, we're going to come to the exact same conclusion that Solomon came to. It's inevitable that that's going to happen. That everything, all this vanity and pain and strife, it all comes from seeking out things that satis- or to satisfy us that are under the sun, things that are not eternal. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes that we shouldn't lose heart because even though our outer selves are wasting away, our inner selves are being renewed day by day. But this is the, this is the problem with, with our point of view. Our inner selves being renewed day by day, there's a qualifier to that. When our inner selves are being renewed day by day, it's because that we, or Paul says it's because we're seeking not things that are, that are temporary, but that we're seeking the things that are unseen, the things that are eternal. Our eyes are not on everything that's under the sun. I know that's hard to do, especially as we look at something like, like Solomon says, where he hates his life. 
Whenever you get in that moment of like, I just hate my life, generally speaking, it's because our eyes are so like focused on this one thing that we don't have or this one thing that God has not given us. We have tunnel vision. We cannot see the bigger picture. And more importantly, we don't have our eyes on eternal things. I know that's a very dissatisfying answer because I think that the youth pastor answers like, just look to Jesus. Everyone's like, I, I, I tried. Didn't make me feel better. And I understand that. Like, I get that. But the point is our eyes cannot just be on things that are under the sun. Solomon's eyes were only on things that were under the sun. God is the author and perfecter of our faith, but to escape the vanity of this life, we have to make him the objects of our affection or the object of our affections because nothing else is going to do. Nothing else will satisfy us. Nothing else will benefit us. That's not to say that God's good gifts are not good, but we see the character and the legs of our faith whenever we're able to find whenever we're able to see the Lord as the object of our faith and as our portion whenever life is going badly. That's when your faith will be dictated, or that's when it will be determined. Like that, it's kind of a bummer, but it's the same thing with almost anything in life. That your commitment to anything is only as good as your ability to, to maintain your commitment through adverse circumstances, through adversity. I was talking to Parker before the sermon about his football team and how there's like a bunch of injuries happening. That's, that's adversity. You, you can fold or you can continue to, in this case, play hard. But in the case of the Christian, continue to find your portion in Jesus. And that's an everyday thing. If you, if you, <laughs> I think with this text, what's hard about it is that this phrase, I hated my life is like the most modern phrase maybe in scripture where most of the things that we read in scripture, it feels like, okay, this was obviously written 400, 500, 2,000 years ago, right? But this is one that like, I feel like is pretty common. I wonder how frequently people say, I hate my life. And if you are in that state, if you, if you hate your life, finding contentment in it, finding joy in that, finding the Lord is your portion in that is an everyday thing. There is no one-size-fits-all solution. There's not like a magic contentment pill that you can take that will fix your life. It's a daily thing. It's a day-by-day thing, right? right? Hour by hour, minute by minute. I used to say that all the time. I say it less now. But it's that point where, where Solomon right now, his, his focus is, he's laser-focused on what's right in front of him. But he needs the Lord to be his portion for this day. And tomorrow, he'll, he'll figure it out tomorrow. But for this day, he has to figure out where is contentment going to come from? But why we are able to do that, again, it seems like God's just messing with us, like he wants to see how far he can push us to retain our love. That's not it, which is our other application point, that if, if we have to find our portion of the Lord, we do so because we know the Lord will not forsake and turn away from those who are in him. Solomon is at his rock bottom. He's in a state of desperate despair, not unlike the author of Lamentations, I said I was going to read Lamentations 3. I'm going to read it right now. He said, this is, a lot of people think this is Jeremiah writing. But he says, I am a man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. This is Jeremiah writing about God. What God has done to him specifically. Okay, keep that in mind. Keep that very, very present in your mind. Because this text 
is a whole lot of God doing bad things to Jeremiah, it would seem like. He says, he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. Let's get down to verse 10. He says, he is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. Listen to this one. He says, he drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. That's really intense. It's a really bad thing for someone to do to you. Imagine that. Like, think about how terrible that would be. That'd be terrible, I think. I mean, maybe not. Verse 16 says, He has made my teeth grind on gravel, and he made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Sound like Solomon? Then he says, So I say, My endurance is perished. So is my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continue, or continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this is, this is the turning point. It says, this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear, or that he bear the yoke in his youth. The reason I love that text, and this text moved me profoundly this week, even as I was writing this, it sort of like gave me strength. The reason is because the author, the author offers no reasoning behind God's faithfulness. He lists all the reasons or all the things that God has done to him and allowed to happen to him. But we'll notice that he doesn't just write that the Lord is faithful. He isn't, a lot of times in the Psalms, David will say, or will, he'll, he'll say something completely contradictory. He'll say that everything is terrible, and then he'll finish it by saying the Lord is good, God is good. And a lot of times, it's just him trying to like preach to himself, remind himself God is good. But that's not what happens here. He writes in verse 21 that he calls to mind. He thinks of this, and it gives him hope. In spite of everything that God has done to him, he draws hope from the same God who is seemingly forsaking him because the Lord is his portion. That's, I want to get to the point where, that author, where Jeremiah was in that moment. I've been able to see God let all these things happen in his life, not just let these things happen, but be the, be the one who did these things to him and to be able to say, yet I call this to mind and it gives me hope that the mercies of God are new every morning. So if I could have Jason come up, if you'd stand with me. The Lord is a never-ending well of hope. There's not a depth of hopelessness that the Lord does not inject hope directly into. There isn't a level of desperation and hatred of this life that the Lord's hope cannot turn into goodness, into joy. Where Solomon gets to this point of desperation in his life, where he hates his life, he should have turned to, to Jeremiah. No, he couldn't have turned to Jeremiah. That's chronologically impossible. He should have turned to other authors who've written similar things, to his dad who wrote very similar things in the Psalms and turned to the Lord as his portion, as the object of his affection, not just as this genie that will give us everything that we want if we just stay righteous, but as the actual motivator, as the motivation in our life, in his life, the thing that, get, that allowed him to keep going, that gave him energy to keep moving forward. 
Again, I think this sermon went kind of off the rails because, like I said, I took some liberties with what this text was about. I'm going to have to deal with God on that later. But listen to me whenever I say that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That whenever we are in that moment, like, I hate my life. Nothing is going right in my life. We should read that and hear that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. That every morning part is really important. It's every morning, the next morning. Not, not this morning for the next three weeks. Every morning, his mercies are new. So we're going to open up the altars tonight. If you're in a state of desperation tonight, I'd encourage you to come and pray. If you hate your life, I think I, just as I was writing this, it made me not nervous, but almost uncomfortable because I know that this is probably a phrase that some of you, if not most of you, have uttered to yourself, that you hate your life. If you hate your life right now, First of all, that is okay, like Solomon did it. That kind of gives us permission. But also, we talked about on Sunday night, if you're a life group, is that this is the place that we should kind of fix that. That the gathering on Wednesday and Sunday night, that you should be, you should talk to someone about it. Don't just sit there and ponder like Solomon is. I, I came to this point where I hate my life and he has nowhere to go except to, he's like, I guess I should write this down so that someone else doesn't hate their life in the future. What benefit would it have been to Solomon if he had somebody to go to? So if, you, if you're in that spot, come and pray. Talk to someone. Ask someone to pray with you. And if you're not a Christian, this is a question that will still, or this is a phrase that you've probably uttered as well. But the good news for the Christian is that there are new mercies every single morning to be found. For the non-Christian, that's less so. That's less true. So tonight, please hope and find your hope in Jesus. Like I said, he's an endless, never-ending well of hope. Turn from your sin. Turn from the things that you are trying to fill this void with and give them to the Lord. Give them to Jesus and surrender to him tonight. Let's sing together.